Chapter Three of Uncanny Stories by Mason Clare. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rhiannon Damon. The Flaw in the Crystal, Part One. It was Friday, the day he always came, if, so she safeguarded it, he was to come at all. They had left it that way in the beginning. That it should be open to him to come or not to come, they had not even settled that it should be Fridays, but it always was, the week end being the only time when he could get away, the only time, he had explained to Agatha Varell, when getting away excited no remark, he had to, or he would have broken down. Agatha called it getting away from things, but she knew that there was only one thing, his wife Bella. To be wedded to a mass of furious and malignant nerves, which was all that poor Bella was now, simply meant destruction to a man like Rodney Lanyon. Rodney's own nerves were not as strong as they had been after ten years of Bella's. It had been understood for long enough, understood even by Bella, that if he couldn't have his weekends, he was done for. He couldn't possibly have stood the torment and the strain of her. Of course, she didn't know he spent the greater part of them with Agatha Varell. It was not to be desired that she should know. Her obtuseness helped them. Even in her younger and saner days, she had failed, persistently, to realize any profound and poignant thing that touched him. So, by the mercy of heaven, she had never realized Agatha Varell. She used to say she had never seen anything in Agatha, which amounted, as he once told her. To not seeing Agatha at all, still less could she have compassed any vision of the tie, the extraordinary, intangible, immaterial tie that held them. Sometimes, at the last moment, his escape to Agatha would prove impossible. So they had left it further that he was to send her no forewarning; he was to come when and as he could. He could always get a room in the village inn, or at the farm nearby. And in Agatha's house, he would find his place ready for him, the place which had become his refuge, his place of peace. There was no need to prepare her; she was never not prepared. It was as if, by her preparedness, by the absence of preliminaries, of adjustments and arrangements, he was always there, lodged in the innermost chamber. She had set herself apart. She had swept herself bare and scoured herself clean for him. Clean she had to be, clean from the desire that he should come, clean, above all, from the thought, the knowledge she now had, that she could make him come. For if she had given herself up to that, but she never had, never since the knowledge came to her, since she discovered, wonderfully, by a divine accident. That at any moment she could make him, that she had whatever it was, the power, the uncanny, unaccountable gift. She was beginning to see more and more how it worked, how inevitably, how infallibly, it worked. She was even a little afraid of it, of what it might come to mean. It did mean that without his knowledge, separated as they were and had to be. She could always get at him, and supposing it came to mean that she could get at him to make him do things, 
Why, the bare idea of it was horrible. Nothing could well have been more horrible to Agatha. It was the secret and the essence of their remarkable relation that she had never tried to get at him, whereas Bella had, calamitously, and still more calamitously, because of the peculiar magic that there was, there must have been, in her, Bella had succeeded. To have tried to get at him would have been for Agatha the last treachery, the last indecency, while for Rodney it would have been the destruction of her charm. She was the way of escape for him from Bella, but she had always left her door, even the innermost door, wide open, so that where shelter and protection faced him, there faced him also the way of departure, the way of escape from her. And if her thought could get at him, and fasten on him, and shut him in there. It could, she knew, but it need not. She was really all right. Restraint had been the essence and the secret of the charm she had, and it was also the secret and the essence of her gift. Why, she had brought it to so fine a point that she could shut out, and by shutting out destroy, any feeling, any thought that did violence to any other. She could shut them all out, if it came to that, and make the whole place empty, so that, if this knowledge of her power did violence, she had only to close her door on it. She closed it now on the bare thought of his coming, on the little innocent hope she had that he would come. By an ultimate refinement and subtlety of honor, she refused to let even expectation cling to him. But though it was dreadful to work her gift that way, to make him do things, there was another way in which she did work it, lawfully, sacredly, incorruptibly, the way it first came to her. She had worked it twenty times, without his knowledge for how he would have scoffed at her, to make him well. Before it had come to her, he had been, ever since she knew him, more or less ill, more or less tormented by the nerves that were wedded so indissolubly to Bella's. He was always, it seemed to her terror, on the verge. And she could say to herself, Look at him now. His abrupt, incredible recovery had been the first open manifestation of the way it worked. Not that she had tried it on him first. Before she dared do that once, she had proved it on herself twenty times, till she found it infallible. But to ensure continuous results, it had to be a continuous process. And in order to give herself up to it, to him, to his pitiful case, she had lately, as her friend said, cut herself completely off. She had gone down into Buckinghamshire and taken a small, solitary house at Serret End, in the Valley of the Chess, three miles from the nearest station. She had shut herself up in a world half a mile long, one straight hill to the north, one to the south, two strips of flat pasture, the river and the white farm road between. A world closed east and west by the turn the valley takes there, between the hills, and barred by a gate at each end of the farm road. A land of pure curves, of delicate colors, delicate shadows. All winter through, a land of gray woods and sallow fields, of plowed hillsides pale with the white strain of the chalk. In April, it was April now, a land shining with silver and green, and the ways out of it led into lanes. It had neither sight nor hearing of the high roads beyond. 
There were only two houses in that half-mile of valley, Agatha's house and Woodman's farm. Agatha's house, white as a cutting in the chalk downs, looked southwest, up the valley and across it, to where a slender beechwood went lightly up the hill, and then stretched out in a straight line along the top, with the bare, fawn-colored flank of the plowed land below. The farmhouse looked east towards Agatha's house across a field, a red-brick house, dull, dark red, with the gray bloom of weather on it, flat-faced and flat-eyed, two windows on each side of the door and a row of five above, all nine staring at the small white house across the field. The narrow, flat farm road linked the two. Except Rodney, when his inn was full, nobody ever came to Woodman's farm, and Agatha's house, set down inside its east gate, shared its isolation, its immunity. Two villages, unseen, unheard, served her not a mile away. It was impossible to be more sheltered, more protected, and more utterly cut off, and only fifteen miles, as the crow flies, between this solitude and London, so that it was easy for Rodney Lanyon to come down. At two o'clock, the hour when he must come, if he were coming, she began to listen for the click of the latch at the garden gate. She had agreed with herself that at the last moment, expectancy could do no harm. It couldn't influence him. For either he had taken the 12.30 train at Marlebin, or he had not. Agatha was so far reasonable. So at the last moment, she permitted herself that dangerous and terrible joy. When the click came and his footsteps after it, she admitted further, now when it could do no harm, that she had had foreknowledge of him. She had been aware all the time that he would come. And she wondered, as she always wondered at his coming, whether really she would find him well, or whether this time it had incredibly miscarried. And her almost unbearable joy became suspense, became vehement desire to see him and gather from his face whether this time also it had worked. How are you? How have you been? was her question when he stood before her in her white room, holding her hand for an instant. Tremendously fit, he answered, ever since I last saw you. Oh, seeing me. It was as if she wanted him to know that seeing her made no difference. She looked at him and received her certainty. She saw him clear-eyed and young, younger than he was, his clean, bronzed face set, as it used to be, in a firmness that obliterated the lines, the little, agonized lines that had made her heart ache. It always does me good, he said, to see you. And to see you, you know what it does to me. He thought he knew, as he caught back his breath and looked at her, taking in again her fine whiteness and her tenderness, her purity of line and the secret of her eyes, whose color, if they had color, he was never sure about, taking in all of her, from her adorable feet to her hair, vividly dark, that sprang from the white parting like, was it like waves or wings? What had once touched and moved him unspeakably in Agatha's face was the capacity it had, latent in its tragic lines, for expressing terror. Terror was what he most dreaded for her, what he had most tried to keep from her, to keep out of her face, and latterly he had not found it. Or rather he had not found the unborn, lurking spirit of it there. It had gone, that little tragic droop in Agatha's face, 
the corners of her eyes and of her beautiful mouth were lifted, as if by... He could find no other word for the thing he meant but wings. She had a look which, if it were not of joy, was of something more vivid and positive than peace. He put it down to their increased and undisturbed communion, made possible by her retirement to Sarat End. Yet, as he looked at her, he sighed again. In response to a sigh, she asked suddenly, "'How is Bella?' His face lighted wonderfully. "'It's extraordinary,' he said. "'She's better. Miles better. In fact, if it wasn't tempting Providence, I should say she was well. She's been, for the last week anyhow, a perfect angel.' His amazed, uncomprehending look gave her the clue to what had happened. It was another instance of the astounding and mysterious way it worked. She must have got at Bella somehow in getting at him. She saw now no end to the possibilities of the thing. There wasn't anything so wonderful in making him what, after all, he was. But if she, Bella, had been, even for a week, a perfect angel, it had made her what she was not, and never had been. His next utterance came to her with no irrelevance. You've been found out. For a moment, she wondered. Had he guessed it, then? Her secret? He had never known anything about it, and it was not likely that he should know now. He was indeed very far from knowing when he could think that it was seeing her that did it. There was, of course, the other secret, the fact that he did see her. But she had never allowed that it was a secret, or that it need be, although they guarded it so carefully. Anybody, except Bella, who wouldn't understand it, was welcome to know that he came to see her. He must mean that. Found out? She repeated. If you haven't been, you will be. You mean, she said, Sarah End has been found out? If you put it that way, I saw the Powells at the station. She breathed freely. They told me they'd taken rooms at some farm here. Which farm? He didn't remember. Was it Woodman's Farm? She asked. And he said, Yes, that was the name they told him. Whereabouts was it? Don't you know? She said. That's the name of your farm. He had not known it, and was visibly annoyed at knowing it now. And Agatha herself felt some dismay. If it had been any other place but Woodman's Farm, it stared at them, it watched them, it knew all their goings out and their comings in. It knew Rodney, not that that had mattered in the least, but the Powells, when they came, would know too. She tried to look as if that didn't matter either, while they faced each other in a silence, a curious, unfamiliar discomposure. She recovered first. After all, she said, why shouldn't they? Well, I thought you weren't going to tell people. Her face mounted a sudden flame, a signal of resentment. She had always resented the imputation of secrecy in their relations. And now it was as if he were dragging forward the thought that she perpetually put away from her. Tell about what? She asked coldly. About Sarah Tend. I thought we'd agreed to keep it for ourselves. I haven't told everybody, but I did tell Millie Powell. My dear girl, 
That wasn't very clever of you. I told her not to tell. She knows what I want to be alone for. Good God! As he stared in dismay at what he judged to be her unspeakable indiscretion, the thought rushed in on her straight from him. The naked, terrible thought that there should be anything they had to hide, they had to be alone for. She saw at the same time how defenseless he was before it. He couldn't keep it back. He couldn't put it away from him. It was always with him, a danger watching on his threshold. Then he made her face it with him. We're done for. No, no, she cried. How could you think that? It was another thing. Something I'm trying to do. You told her, he insisted. What did you tell her? That I'm doing it. That I'm here for my health. She understands it that way. He smiled as if he were satisfied, knowing her so well. And still his thought, his terrible, naked thought, was there. It was looking at her straight out of his eyes. Are you sure she understands? He said. Yes, absolutely. He hesitated, and then put it differently. Are you sure she doesn't understand? That she hasn't an inkling? He wasn't sure whether Agatha understood, whether she realized the danger. About you and me, he said. Ah, my dear, I've kept you secret. She doesn't know we know each other. And if she did, she finished it with a wonderful look. A look of unblinking, yet vaguely, pitifully, uncandid candor. She had always met him, and would always have to meet him, with the idea that there was nothing in it. For, if she once admitted that there was anything, then they were done for. She couldn't, how could she, let him keep on coming with that thought in him, acknowledged by them both. That was where she came in, and where her secret, her gift, would work now more beneficently than ever. The beauty of it was that it would make them safe, absolutely safe. She had only got to apply it to that thought of his, and the thought would not exist. Since she could get at him, she could do for him what he, poor dear, couldn't perhaps always do for himself. She could keep that dreadful possibility in him under. She could, in fact, make their communion all that she wanted it to be. I don't like it, he said miserably. I don't like it. A little line of worry was coming in his face again. The door opened, and a maid began to go in and out, laying the table for their meal. He watched the door close on her and said, Won't that woman wonder what I come for? She can see what you come for, she smiled. Why are you spoiling it with thinking things? It's for you I think them. I don't mind. It doesn't matter so much for me. But I want you to be safe. Oh, I'm safe, my dear, she answered. You were, and you would be still if these Powells hadn't found you out. He meditated. What do you suppose they've come for? He asked. They've come, I imagine, for his health. What? To a godforsaken place like this? They know what it's done for me. So they think, poor darlings, 
Perhaps it may do something, even yet, for him. What's the matter with him? Something dreadful, and they say, incurable. It isn't, he paused. I can't tell you what it is. It isn't anything you'd think it was. It isn't anything bodily. I never knew it. You're not supposed to know. And you wouldn't, unless you did know. And please, you don't. You don't know anything. He smiled. No. You haven't told me, have you? I only told you because you never tell things. And because... Because? He waited, smiling. Because I wanted you to see he doesn't count. Well, but she's all right, I take it. At first, she failed to grasp his implication that if, owing to his affliction, Harding Powell didn't count, Millie, his young wife, did. Her faculties of observation and of inference would, he took it, be unimpaired. She'll wonder, won't she? He expounded. About us? Not she. She's too much wrapped up in him to notice anyone. And he? Oh, my dear, he's too much wrapped up in it. Another anxiety then came to him. I say, you know, he isn't dangerous, is he? She laughed. Dangerous? Oh, dear me, no. A lamb. She kept on saying to herself, why shouldn't they come? What difference did it make? Up till now, she had not admitted that anything could make a difference, that anything could touch, could alter by a shade the safe, the intangible, the unique relation between her and Rodney. It was proof against anything that anybody could think. And the Powells were not given to thinking things. Agatha's own mind had been a crystal without a flaw, in its clearness, its sincerity. It had to be, to ensure the blessed working of the gift. As again, it was by the blessed working of the gift that she kept it so. She could only think of that, the secret, the gift, the inexpressible thing, as itself a flawless crystal, a charmed circle, or rather, as a sphere that held all the charmed circles that you draw round things to keep them safe, to keep them holy. She had drawn her circle round Rodney Lanyon and herself. Nobody could break it. They were supernaturally safe. And yet, the presence of the Powells had made a difference. She was forced to own that, though she remained untouched. It had made a difference in him. It was as if, in the agitation produced by them, he had brushed aside some veil, and had let her see something that up till now her crystal vision had refused to see, something that was more than a lurking possibility. She discovered in him a desire, an intention that up till now he had concealed from her. It had left its hiding place. It rose on terrifying wings and fluttered before her, troubling her. She was reminded that, though there were no lurking possibilities in her, with him it might be different. For him, the tie between them might come to mean something it had never meant and could not mean for her, something she had refused not only to see, but to foresee and provide for. She was aware of a certain relief when Monday came, 
and he had left her without any further unveilings and revealings. She was even glad when, about the middle of the week, the pals came with a cartload of luggage and settled at the farm. She said to herself that they would take her mind off him. They had a way of seizing on her, and holding her attention to the exclusion of all other objects. She could hardly not have been seized and held by a case so pitiful, so desperate as theirs. How pitiful and desperate it had become, she learned almost at once from the face of her friend, the little pale-eyed wife, whose small, flat, flower-like features were washed out and worn fine by watchings and listenings on the border, on the thresholds. Yes, he was worse. He had had to give up his business. Harding Powell was a gentle stockbroker. It wasn't any longer, Millie Powell intimated, a question of borders and of thresholds. They had passed all that. He had gone clean over. He was in the dreadful interior. And she, the resolute and vigilant little woman, had no longer any power to get him out. She was at the end of her tether. Agatha knew what he had been for years? Well, he was worse than that, far worse than he had been, ever. Not so bad, though, that he hadn't intervals in which she knew how bad he was, and was willing to do everything, to try anything. They were going to try Sarat End. It was her idea. She knew how marvelously it had answered with dear Agatha. Not that Agatha ever was, or could be, where he was, poor darling. And besides, Agatha herself was an attraction. It had occurred to Millie Powell that it might do Harding good to be near Agatha. There was something about her. Millie didn't know what it was. But she felt it. He felt it. An influence. Or something that made for mental peace. It was, Mrs. Powell said, as if she had some secret. She hoped Agatha wouldn't mind. It couldn't possibly hurt her. He couldn't. The darling couldn't hurt a fly. He could only hurt himself. And if he got really bad, why then, of course, they would have to leave Sarah End. He would have, she said sadly, to go away somewhere. But not yet. Oh, not yet. He wasn't bad enough for that. She would keep him with her up to the last possible moment. The last possible moment. Agatha could understand, couldn't she? Agatha did, indeed. Millie Powell smiled her desperate white smile and went on, always with her air of appeal to Agatha. That was why she wanted to be near her. It was awful not to be near somebody who understood, who would understand him. For Agatha would understand, wouldn't she, that to a certain extent he must be given into? That, apart from Agatha, was why they had chosen Sarat End. It was the sort of place, wasn't it, where you would go if you didn't want people to get at you. Where, Millie's very voice became furtive as she explained it, you could hide. His idea, his last, seemed to be that something was trying to get at him. No, not people, something worse, something terrible. It was always after him. The most piteous thing about him, piteous but adorable, was that he came to her, to her, imploring her to hide him. And so she had hidden him here. 
Agatha took in her friend's high courage as she looked at the eyes, where fright barely fluttered under the poised suspense. She approved of the plan. It appealed to her by its sheer audacity. She murmured that if there were anything that she could do, Millie had only to come to her. Oh, well, Millie had come. What she wanted Agatha to do, if she saw him and he should say anything about it, was simply to take the line that he was safe. Agatha said that was the line she did take. She wasn't going to let herself think, and Millie mustn't think, not for a moment, that he wasn't, that there was anything to be afraid of. Anything to be afraid of here? That's my point, said Millie. Mine is that here or anywhere, wherever he is, there mustn't be any fear. How can he get better if we keep him wrapped in it? You're not afraid. You're not afraid. Persistent, invincible affirmation was part of her method, her secret. Millie replied a little wearily. She knew nothing about the method. I haven't time to be afraid, she said. And as long as you're not. It's you who matter, Agatha cried. You're so near him. Don't you realize what it means to be so near? Millie smiled sadly, tenderly, as if she didn't know. My dear, that's all that keeps me going. I've got to make him feel that he's protected. He is protected, said Agatha. Already she was drawing her charmed circle round him. As long as I hold out, if I give in, he's done for. You mustn't think it. You mustn't say it. But I know it. Oh, my dear, I'm all he's got. At that, she looked for a moment as if she might break down. She said the terrible part of it was that they were left so much alone. People were beginning to shrink from him, to be afraid of him. You know, said Agatha, I'm not. You must bring him to see me. The little woman had risen, as she said, to go to him. She stood there, visibly hesitating. She couldn't bring him. He wouldn't come. Would Agatha go with her and see him? Agatha went. As they approached the farm, she saw to her amazement that the door was shut, and the blinds, the ugly, ochreish yellow blinds, were down in all the nine windows of the front, the windows of the Powell's rooms. The house was like a house of the dead. Do you get the sun on this side? She said, and as she said it, she realized the stupidity of her question, for the nine windows looked to the east, and the sun, wheeling down the west, had been in their faces as they came. Millie answered mechanically, No, we don't get any sun. She added with an irrelevance that was only apparent, I've had to take all four rooms to keep other people out. They never come, said Agatha. No, said Millie, but if they did... The front door was locked. Millie had the key. When they had entered, Agatha saw her turn it in the lock again, slowly and without a sound. All the doors were shut in the passage, and it was dark there. Millie opened a door on the left, at the front of the steep stairs. You will be in here, she said. The large room was lit with a thick, ochreish light through the square of its drawn blinds. It ran the whole width of the house, and had a third window looking west, where the yellow light prevailed. 
a horrible light it was. It cast thin, turbid, brown shadows on the walls. Harding Powell was sitting between the drawn blinds, alone in the black hollow of the chimney place. He crouched in his chair, and his bowed back was towards them as they stood there on the threshold. Harding, said Millie, Agatha has come to see you. He turned in his chair and rose as they entered. His chin was sunk on his chest, and the first thing Agatha noticed was the difficult, slow, forward-thrusting movement with which he lifted it. His eyes seemed to come up last of all from the depths to meet her. With a peculiar foreign courtesy, he bowed his head again over her hand as he held it. He apologized for the darkness in which they found him. Harding Powell's manners had always been perfect, and it struck Agatha as strange and pathetic that his malady should have left untouched the incomparable quality he had. Millie went to the windows and drew the blinds up. The light revealed him in his exquisite perfection, his small, fragile finish. He was fifty, or thereabouts, but slight as a boy, and nervous, and dark as Englishmen are dark. Jaw and chin shaven, his mouth hidden by the straight droop of his mustache. From the eyes downwards, the outlines of his face and features were of an extreme regularity, and a fineness undestroyed by the work of the strained nerves on the sallow, delicate texture. But his eyes, dark like an animal's, were the eyes of a terrified thing, a thing hunted and on the watch, a thing that listened continually for the soft feet of the hunter. Above these eyes, his brows were twisted, were tortured with his terror. He turned to his wife. Did you lock the door, dear? He said. I did, but you know, Harding, we needn't hear. He shivered slightly and began to walk up and down before the hearth place. When he had his back to Millie, Millie followed him with her eyes of anguish. When he turned and faced her, she met him with her white smile. Presently he spoke again. He wondered whether they would object to his drawing the blinds down. He was afraid he would have to. Otherwise, he said, he would be seen. Millie laid her hand on the arm that he stretched towards the window. Darling, she said, you've forgotten. You can't possibly be seen here. It's just the one place, isn't it, Agatha, where you can't be? Her eyes signaled to Agatha to support her, not but what she had perfect confidence in the plan. It was, Agatha assented. And Agatha knows, said Millie. He shivered again. He had turned to Agatha. Forgive me if I suggest that you cannot really know. Heaven forbid that you should know. Millie, intent on her plan, persisted. But, dearest, you said yourself it was the one place. I said that? When did I say it? Yesterday. Yesterday? I dare say. But I didn't sleep last night. It wouldn't let me. Very few people do sleep, said Agatha, for the first time in a strange place. The place isn't strange. That's what I complain of. That's what keeps me awake. No place ever will be strange when it's there. And it was there last night. Darling, Millie murmured. You know what I mean, he said. 
the thing that keeps me awake. Of course, if I'd slept last night, I'd have known it wasn't there. But when I didn't sleep... He left it to them to draw the only possible conclusion. They dropped the subject. They turned to other things and talked a little while, sitting with him in his room with the drawn blinds. From time to time, when they appealed to him, he gave an urbane assent, a murmur, a suave motion of his hand. When the light went, they lit a lamp. Agatha stayed and dined with them, that being the best thing she could do. At nine o'clock, she rose and said goodnight to Harding Powell. He smiled, a drawn smile. Ah, if I could sleep, he said. That's the worst of it. He's not sleeping, said Millie at the gate. He will sleep. He will sleep, said Agatha. Millie sighed. She knew he wouldn't. The plan, she said, was no good after all. It wouldn't work. How could it? There was nothing behind it. All Millie's plans had been like that. They fell to dust. They were dust. There had been always that pitiful, desperate stirring of the dust to hide the terror, the futile throwing of the dust in the poor thing's eyes, as if he couldn't see through it, as if, with the supernatural lucidity, the invincible cunning of the insane, he didn't see through anything and provide for it. It was really only his indestructible urbanity, persisting through the wreck of him, that bore, tolerantly, temperately, with Millie and her plans. Without it, he might be dangerous. With it, as long as it lasted, little Millie, plan as she would, was safe. But they couldn't count on its lasting. Agatha had realized that from the moment when she had seen him draw down the blind again after his wife had drawn it up. That was the maddest thing he had done yet. She had shuddered at it as an act of violence. It outraged, cruelly, his exquisite quality. It was so unlike him. She was not sure that Millie hadn't even made things worse by her latest plan, the flight to Serret End. It emphasized the fact that they were flying, that they had to fly. It had brought her to the house with the drawn blinds, in the closed, barred valley, to the end of the world, to the end of her tether. And when she realized that it was the end, when he realized it, Agatha couldn't leave him there. She couldn't, when she had the secret, leave him to poor Millie and her plans. That had been in her mind when she had insisted on it that he would sleep. She knew what Millie meant by her sigh and the look she gave her. If Millie could have been impolite, she would have told her that it was all very well to say so. But how were they going to make him? And she, too, felt that something more was required of her than that irritating affirmation. She had got to make him. His case, his piteous case, cried out for an extension of the gift. She hadn't any doubt as to its working. There were things she didn't know about it yet— but she was sure of that. She had proved it by a hundred experimental intermissions, abstentions, and recoveries. In order to be sure, you had only to let go and see how you got on without it. She had tried in that way, with skepticism and precaution, on herself. 
but not in the beginning. She could not say that she had tried it in the beginning at all, even on herself. It had simply come to her, as she put it, by a divine accident. Heaven knew she had needed it. She had been, like Rodney Lanyon, on the verge, where he, poor dear, had brought her. So impossible had it been then to bear her knowledge, and, what was worse, her divination of the things he bore from Bella. It was her divination, her compassion, that had wrecked her as she stood aside, cut off from him, he on the verge, and she near it, looking on, powerless to help while Bella tore at him. Talk of the verge. The wonder was they hadn't gone clean over it, both of them. She couldn't say then from what region, what tract of unexplored, incredible mystery her help had come. It came one day, one night when she was at her worst. She remembered how, with some resurgent, ultimate instinct of surrender, she had sunk on the floor of her room, flung out her arms across the bed in the supreme gesture of supplication, and thus gone, eyes shut and with no motion of thought or sense in her, clean into the blackness where, as if it had been waiting for her, the thing had found her. It had found her. Agatha was precise on that point. She had not found it. She had not even stumbled on it, blundered up against it in the blackness. The way it worked, the wonder of her instantaneous well-being, had been the first, the very first hint she had that it was there. She had never quite recaptured her primal, virgin sense of it, but to set against that, she had entered more and more into possession. She had found out the secret of its working, and had controlled it, reduced it to an almost intelligible method. You could think of it as a current of transcendent power, hitherto mysteriously inhibited. You made the connection, having cut off all other currents that interfered, and then you simply turned it on. In other words, if you could put it into words at all, you shut your eyes and ears, you closed up the sense of touch, you made everything dark around you and withdrew into your innermost self. You burrowed deeply into the darkness there till you got beyond it. You tapped the power, as it were, underground at any point you pleased and turned it on in any direction. She could turn it on to Harding Powell without any loss to Rodney Lanyon, for it was immeasurable, inexhaustible. She looked back at the farmhouse with its veiled windows. Formless and immense, the shadow of Harding Powell swayed uneasily on one of the yellow blinds. Across the field, her own house showed pure and dim against the darkening slope behind it, showed washed and watered white in the liquid, lucid twilight. Her house was always open and on every side. It flung out its casement arms to the night and to the day. And now all the lamps were lit. Every doorway was a golden shaft, every window a golden square. The whiteness of its walls quivered, and the blurred edges flowed into the dark of the garden. It was the fragile shell of a sacred and a burning light. She did not go in all at once. She crossed the river and went up the hill through the beechwood. She walked there every evening in the darkness, calling her thoughts home to sleep. The Easter moon, golden white and holy, looked down at her 
shrined under the long, sharp arch of the beech trees. It was like going up and up towards a dim sanctuary where the holiest sat enshrined. A sense of consecration was upon her. It came, solemn and pure and still, out of the tumult of her tenderness and pity. But it was too awful for pity and for tenderness. It aspired like a flame and lost itself in light. It grew like a wave till it was vaster than any tenderness or any pity. It was as if her heart rose on the swell of it and was carried away into a rhythm so tremendous that her own pulses of compassion were no longer felt or felt only as the hushed and delicate vibration of the wave. She recognized her state. It was the blessed state desired as the condition of the working of the gift. She turned when the last arch of the beech trees broke and opened to the sky at the top of the hill, where the moon hung in immensity, free of her hill, free of the shrine that held her. She went down with slow, soft footsteps, as if she carried herself, her whole fragile being, as a vessel, a crystal vessel for the holy thing, and was careful lest a touch of the earth should jar and break her. She went still more gently and with half-shut eyes through her illuminated house. She turned the lights out in her room and undressed herself in the darkness. She laid herself on the bed with straight, lax limbs, with arms held apart a little from her body, with eyelids shut lightly on her eyes. All fleshly contacts were diminished. It was now as if her being drank at every pore the swimming darkness, as if the rhythm of her heart and of her breath had ceased in the pulse of its invasion. She sank in it and was covered with wave upon wave of darkness. She sank and was upheld. She dissolved and was gathered together again, a flawless crystal. She was herself the heart of the charmed circle, poised in the ultimate unspeakable stillness, beyond death, beyond birth, beyond the movement, the vehemence, the agitations of the world. She drew Harding Powell into it and held him there. To draw him to any purpose, she had first to loosen and destroy the fleshly, sinister image of him that, for the moment of evocation, hung like a picture on the darkness. In a moment, the fleshly image receded. It sank back into the darkness. His name, Harding Powell, was now the only earthly sign of him that she suffered to appear. In the third moment, his name was blotted out. And then it was as if she drew him by intangible, supersensible threads. She touched, with no sense of peril, his innermost essence. The walls of flesh were down between them. She had got at him. And having got at him, she held him. A bloodless spirit, a bodiless essence, in the fount of healing. She said to herself, He will sleep now. He will sleep. He will sleep. And as she slid into her own sleep, she held and drew him with her. He would sleep. He would be all right as long as she slept. Her sleep, she had discovered, 
did more than carry on the amazing act of communion and redemption. It clinched it. It was the seal on the bond. Early the next morning she went over to the farm. The blinds were up. The doors and windows were flung open. Millie met her at the garden gate. She stopped her and walked a little way with her across the field. "'It's worked,' she said. "'It's worked after all, like magic.' For a moment, Agatha wondered whether Millie had guessed anything, whether she divined the secret, and had brought him there for that, and had refused to acknowledge it before she knew. "'What has?' she asked. "'The plan. The place. He slept last night. Ten hours straight on end. I know, for I stayed awake and watched him. And this morning—' Oh, my dear, if you could see him. He's all right. He's all right. And you think, said Agatha, it's the place? Millie knew nothing. Guessed, divined, nothing. Why, what else can it be? She said. What does he think? He doesn't think. He can't account for it. He says himself it's miraculous. Perhaps said Agatha. It is. They were silent a moment over the wonder of it. I can't get over it, said Millie presently. It's so odd that it should make all that difference. I could understand if it had worked that way at first, but it didn't. Think of him yesterday. And yet, if it isn't the place, what is it? What is it? Agatha did not answer. She wasn't going to tell Millie what it was. If she did, Millie wouldn't believe her, and Millie's unbelief might work against it. It might prove, for all she knew, an inimical, disastrous power. "'Come and see for yourself,' Millie spoke as if it had been Agatha who doubted. They turned again towards the house. Pal had come out and was in the garden, leaning on the gate." they could see how right he was by the mere fact of his being there, presenting himself like that to the vivid light. He opened the gate for them, raising his hat and smiling as they came. His face witnessed to the wonder worked on him. The color showed clean, purged of his taint. His eyes were candid and pure, under brows smoothed by sleep. As they went in, he stood for a moment in the open doorway and looked at the view, admiring the river and the green valley and the bare upland fields under the wood. He had always had, it was part of his rare quality, a prodigious capacity for admiration. "'My God,' he said, "'how beautiful the world is!' He looked at Millie. "'And all that isn't a patch on my wife.' He looked at her with tenderness and admiration. And the look was the flower." the perfection of his sanity. Millie drew in her breath with a little sound like a sob. Her joy was so great that it was almost unbearable. Then he looked at Agatha and admired the green gown she wore. You don't know, he said, how exquisitely right you are. She smiled. She knew how exquisitely right he was. End of part one.